The global banking crisis continues to deepen as the meltdown at Credit Suisse compounds fears of an all-out financial crisis. Central banks and other government entities are stepping in to provide massive infusions of money to stabilize world capitalism. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week, only thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. Richard Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining. You know, Richard, one of the problems when we encounter these now routine bank meltdowns or capitalist economic crisis is that when you try to understand, when when I say you, I don't mean you, Richard Wolf, the economist, I'm talking about us, we, the people, everybody else who's not either a trained economist or somebody who is working in Wall Street or in finance. When you read the papers to try to understand what's going on, It's almost impossible because the language and the financial instruments that are involved in their interconnectedness are explained in a way, in the financial pages at least, if you read the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times or the New York Times or any of them, they're explained in a way that makes you sort of, you know, for most people, I think their eyes just sort of roll back because they don't understand the language. It's really like reading a foreign language. I'll give you an example. Here's the Wall Street Journal. Strains in the banking sector are roiling a roughly $8 trillion bond market considered almost as safe as U.S. government bonds. So-called agency mortgage bonds are widely held by banks, insurers, and bond funds because they are backed by mortgage loans from the government-owned lenders Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The bonds are far less likely to default than most debt, and are easy to buy and sell quickly, a crucial reason that they were Silicon Valley Bank's biggest investment before it foundered. But agency mortgage-backed securities, this is a financial instrument, like all long-term bonds, are vulnerable to rising interest rates, which pushed their prices down last year and settled banks such as SVB with unrealized losses. The article goes on, Richard, I'm going to read one more sentence just so you get a, I know you know this, but so our audience understands what I'm talking about. 
Last week, the risk premium, the risk premium, another phrase, on a widely followed Bloomberg index of agency MBS, that's the mortgage bond that we're talking about, hit its highest level since October when climbing interest rates turned global markets topsy-turvy. The move reflected fears that other regional banks might have to sell their holdings, bond fund managers said. I mean, Richard, most people don't know what this means, and yet these are the things that most affect their lives, much more than the election outcome, much more than almost anything when the economy is tanking and people can't actually understand why. Well, I mean, I know what you're saying. It has been true for a long time. The literacy, the economic literacy of the American people is, I'm going to try to be very polite, abysmal. There is no quality, consistent education in these issues for the vast majority of people. And I'm talking the overwhelming majority of people. They are not prepared for, trained to understand the language. Let me assure you that the underlying ideas here are graspable by any normal average person. Nothing very complicated is going on here. However, the economics profession has followed the lead of the legal profession and managed to take basic ideas and dress them up in a lingo nobody can follow. And the reason for that is really simple. If you need to navigate the law or you need to navigate the economy, in one case dealing with lawsuits, in the other case or criminal actions, or in the case of economists, either trying to make investments or trying to understand the economic reality, you have to pay to have these gobbledygooks translated back into the simplicities from which they emerge. You have to pay a lawyer to go through the absurd language of courts in order to get your legal issues resolved. And you have to go to economists like me to get the simple things you have to deal with translated out of the weird language economics has developed to deal with it. In economics, even more than the law, there's a further consideration. I don't think this system, and have a, I've born and worked and lived in it all my life, I don't think this system wants an educated population. It doesn't want people to understand really what's going on economically. And that's for a simple reason. Most Americans would be outraged if they understood what's going on. Look, they're already outraged by the things that can't be hidden from them. The inflation at the supermarket, the rising interest rates that affect your credit card, and on and on. Those things can't be hidden, and people are already very upset, and rightly so. But if you understood, and I'm talking here about you, the audience of this program, or of the many other programs that I'm being interviewed for, as people get more and more worried about where things are, and rightly so, well, then I can tell you they would be much more outraged. They would be much more 
angry about what is being done. So let me respond to your particular quotations from the Wall Street Journal and give you an example. Okay, here's the problem. When a government agency, any government agency, whether it's the home mortgage folks at Fannie Mae and all of that, or whether it's the regular treasury borrowing money or any of the home loan banks or any, the many institutions that exist in the United States government developed in our history to borrow from the public money. Okay, let's look at that. When the government borrows, it issues you a document that's usually called a bill if it's short-term, you know, 90 days up to maybe a year, then it's called a, a bill. It's called a note if it's one to five years, more or less. And then it's called a bond if it lasts longer, if the maturity, what it pays you back, is more than a certain number of years. So it's the same thing. It's a debt of the government and it's called a bill, a note, or a bond only in terms of when you have to, when the government has to pay you back. That's it. Every one of these documents has written on it, this amount of money was borrowed on this date, and it will be paid back on that date. And between now and then, it will pay to the whoever the owner of this thing is, an interest rate. Twice a year, usually, you will get your interest payment. And on the piece of paper, it says the interest is 6% or whatever the, the number at that moment is. The interest rate charge goes up and down with the government's need to borrow and the willingness of either other governments or corporations or individuals to make the loan. That's all. That's it. Government bonds, all this language is just about the debts of the government when it borrows anywhere in the world. Next step, and it's really simple. Let's suppose you have a bond for a hundred, hundred dollars, hundred million, doesn't make it a hundred, and the interest rate is six percent. Okay, that means every year for the duration of this document, the government will pay you six percent. Twice a year, 3% each time, that gives you the 6% you'll get. And then when the data on the, on the piece of paper elapses, then you get the money back. That's it. That's how it works. But because these things are negotiable, and that simply means you can buy and sell them, you can sell this document. Nowadays, the document doesn't exist on paper. It exists electronically, but it's exactly the same thing. You can buy it, you can sell it every day. And when you do, of course, the price of it goes up or down, depending on how attractive it is. Now, here comes the only part that takes a moment of understanding. If you want to sell this bond, why? Because you need the money. If you want to sell this bond, you have to go out and find a buyer. The brokerage houses, the banks in this country and the brokerage houses will make that transaction for you. You will sell the bond. What will you sell it for? The hundred you paid? Maybe, maybe not. Let's suppose in the world, at, at the moment you want to sell the bond, interest rates are high, say 10%. 
Why? Because the government has raised interest rates. Why? Well, here's an example. You got an inflation, like we do now, and the Federal Reserve, our central bank, decides to fight the inflation by raising interest rates, which is what happened. So the going interest rate in the economy is 10%. Anybody with money to lend can get 10% because the Federal Reserve has raised it. Will anyone buy your 6% bond? Answer, no, no one in their right mind. Why should they buy your bond that earns them 6% if everywhere else in the economy they can get 10%? Well, then the answer is simple. The only way you're going to sell your bond that carries a 6% coupon, it's often called, that's the rate printed on the thing, the rate paid when it was initially borrowed by the government, the only way you can sell it is if you make it compete with the 10% lenders out there can get everywhere else. And the only way your 6% bond can be competition is if you lower the price. In other words, the value of your bond sitting in your account in some place actually went down because interest rates were raised by the Federal Reserve. That's what happened to the Silicon Valley Bank. That's what happened to the Signature Bank. That's part of what happened to the Credit Suisse in Switzerland. That's part of what has happened to virtually every bank in the United States. The bonds it invested in, and where did it get the money? Your deposits. The deposits of businesses and individuals into the bank, for which they give you next to nothing, turned around and by them lent to the government to get these government bonds. But when the Federal Reserve raised the interest rates, the value of those bonds went down. So the bank is sitting on bonds that are worth way less than what they paid for them. And if you're a depositor, you know that the only way the bank can ever really guarantee you to get your deposits back is if they have enough money to do so. And if the value of their investments dropped because interest rates were raised, they don't have enough money. And that's why the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. Depositors got nervous, pulled out their deposits. The bank had suddenly to sell the bonds it had accumulated. That had to be done at a reduced price. And bingo, they went bankrupt. Here's the unanswered question. And all the rest is make-believe. The unanswered question is, how many banks, where in the country, servicing what part of the country, what industries, what companies, large and small, are in the same situation. Since nearly all banks lend money to the federal government's agencies, every one of those banks has on its books bonds that are worth way less than they used to be. To see it in the broader frame, here's the way to understand it. We live in an economy that's in very deep trouble. Nobody wants, in, in power, nobody wants to admit it, let alone deal with it. So they deal with each aspect of the problem on its own. 
We got an inflation? Oh, goodness. Let's raise interest rates. Next thing you discover, there are consequences if you raise interest rates. One of them is you wreck the banking system. So you know what the Federal Reserve is now doing? Trying to cope with the banking system collapse. And what did they do? They opened the opportunity for banks in trouble to go to the Federal Reserve, our central bank, and get out of them limitless, that's the word of the Federal Reserve, limitless amounts of money to replace the lost value of their loans to the government. The government is bailing out the people that it borrowed from. Does that sound crazy to you? Good. It is crazy. And here's the worst of it. If the government floods the banks with money to save them, it's going to, you get ready now, worsen the inflation because what an inflation needs is less money, not more but in order to solve one problem, you aggravate the other, which is where we started. Solving the inflation problem aggravated the banking problem. And both of those are consequences from trying to cope with the crash of our economy in 2020 and the way that this society handled the pandemic. Those things were so destabilizing in this case, pumping vast amounts of money into the economy that they help generate the inflation. And then the rest is what I've just told you. It's an economic system that is lurching from pillar to post. It doesn't know which way to go. What it identifies a problem and quickly solves it, it hasn't got the time or the expertise or the willingness to face the risks of what it's doing. Today, just to end this, middle, small banks around the country are beating down the doors of their congressmen and women in Washington, furious that the steps taken so far, bailing out the difficult banks, are only the big banks. What they say is going to happen to the little banks across America, which are not being given the largesse of the Federal Reserve. They're screaming bloody murder. So there's now a discussion in Washington, as I speak to you, about whether the government should simply issue a blanket guarantee for all deposits in all banks. I kid you not. That a government like this is thinking of that tells you how grave the problem here is. And you should also note the little detail that they don't want you to understand. Private capitalism is gone. We are now in a governmentally dependent capitalism. We're going to continue to pretend these are private interests and private banks, but they have collapsed. They couldn't manage taking in deposits and making loans, which is what banks do. They did it so badly. They didn't understand what I've tried to explain here, which is basic for bankers to understand. And they're calling in the government, which they control, to save them, which it is trying to do. And where does that leave you and me? Spectators. 
That's our role. We will live with the consequences and we won't even know what's going on, let alone democratically control it. One of the interesting parts about how small businesses, medium-sized businesses, and then the attendant jobs that go with them, and that's a pretty big part of the economy still, a lot of them get their investment money from medium-sized or smaller banks, not the biggest banks, these are the regional banks. And you're saying now that those medium-sized banks, those regional banks are beating down the door of their Congress people, demanding that there be an across the board sort of guarantee for all of their deposits, not just the biggest banks. Right. There's lots of speculation right now that even at the moment, unless something changes with the relationship with the government, that a lot of these medium-sized banks realizing that they could be basically in trouble and that they could go down too, that they're going to be more restrained, more cautious, more you know, uncertain about giving loans to any business other than those that can absolutely prove, and I don't know how many can absolutely prove that they're going to be able to pay those loans back over time. So what we have here is a recipe for an accelerated trend towards recession. And so what's going on, as you're pointing out, is that every solution by the state, by the government, by central banks, which really is a, you know, sort of a standard for the government, each solution leads to a new problem. Yep. And, you know, when we think about what kind of a system we live in, there's private capitalism in the sense that all of these banks and these enterprises, these corporate enterprises are privately owned, meaning they get to keep the profits. The capitalists get to keep the profits. It's their property. But in fact, it's so social, meaning it's so dependent on the government and on the public treasury and on government intervention that in all ways except ownership, it's an already socialized system. It's just that they actually get to keep the profit. So it's still capitalism. It's still private capitalism in the sense that who gets the profits, but in all other ways, it's a state system. It seems like that to me. Go ahead. Yeah, it is a state-supported system. I would argue that capitalism always was. The notion of a private capitalism that could exist without the state is a lovely and in many ways a utopian dream of people who love capitalism, but it's never been a reality. Capitalism has always depended on the government for all kinds of things. The government controls the money supply. Our Federal Reserve is a quasi-government agency. It determines how much money gets printed, literally. If money makes the world go round, then the economy is run by the government that controls the money. And then it has the Defense Department, and then it keeps the old people with a retirement pension. The government does an immense array of things. The notion of a capitalism without the government is silly. But here is the crucial thing that you touched on and I want to end with. Doctors will tell you that at a certain point when people get very, very old, if they are sick, you reach a situation in which the attempt of the doctors, well-intentioned and well-chosen, to attend to this illness in the person 
provokes a deterioration of another ill problem in the body. You fix this, it aggravates that. Or you apply a medication for this problem and it, it clashes with another medication being taken by the patient for another problem. At a certain point, this accumulates and the doctors then have that sad moment of sitting with the patient and his or her family and explaining that they can't do anymore. To try yet another medication, knowing how it clashes with the ones the patient already has, is kind of worse than the disease in that situation. It's a terrible moment. It's a moment when life and death meet. Well, when it happens in an economic system, it's similar but different. Death isn't the problem. What is the problem, or if you like, it is the problem, but death of a system, which can be replaced by another. The thing that nobody wants to face is that we have had a collapse of our financial system in the 1930s. Then again, many times in the 20th, 19th and 20th century. And then again, a few years ago, 2008, 9, 10, and now again, the fixings don't work. The reforms don't work. The system is beset by inflation, by rising interest rates, by a collapsing bank system, by a defense budget out of control, on, I could go on and on. Most of you know that already. Here's the flash news. We are at that point like the old patient who's sick. We can't do anymore without aggravating by one solution another problem. And that is the time when an honest debate ought to be happening. Is our system dying? And if so, do we work on, as a priority, articulating, developing, and moving carefully, careful of our people, from one old system that's over to a new one? I think we're at that point and I'm hoping that we can stimulate the kind of discussion that will stop focusing on stopgap measures that do not work and cost us enormously and start having the conversation about our system that is so long overdue. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolff.com. That's rdwolff.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.